Please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Please give your attention to God's holy word. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Behold, I, Paul, say unto you that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ is become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. Ye did run well, who did hinder you that ye should not obey the truth? This persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. I have confidence in you through the Lord, that ye will be none otherwise minded. But he that troubleth you shall bear his judgment, whosoever he be. And I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would they were even cut off, which trouble you. For, brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if ye bite and devour one another, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit is love." joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. This chapter that we have just read can be said to begin a new section in this epistle, having in the previous chapter finished his doctrinal argument proving justification through faith by grace alone. He now turns to exhort and urge the Galatian church toward the application of such a doctrine. Beginning with an exhortation in verse 1 and what has been called by some a repeating of the most important conclusion of his whole letter, The Apostle Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ 
hath made us free. Or if you change the English word order, uh, the translation word order, that is, in the liberty, therefore, wherewith Christ hath made us free, stand fast. Stand fast, be firm in that liberty, resolute, unshaken, unmoved in it. By way of illustration, you may think of soldiers who are set in their place by their commander, right, in their various positions, and they're not to move or uh, move away from that until they should receive command to do so. So, stand fast in the liberty. But what liberty? What liberty does the Apostle Paul speak of? We heard earlier today in Galatians 4, Paul spoke of not being servants in bondage under the elements of the world, but being those having received the adoption of sons in Christ. Having the Spirit's powerful working in their hearts to call upon God as Father and through Christ as an heir of God. And in verse 31 of the previous chapter, by way of allegory, they were not children of the bondwoman, Hagar, but of the free woman, Sarah. The children of God in Christ are not in bondage any longer to the law as a judge handing out their condemnation, threatening the wrath of God, weighing down the conscience with guilt without forgiveness, nor to the law and those ceremonies and shadows which after Christ should come are honorably buried and no longer to be observed as a matter of obedience. They are at liberty to greater obedience because the Lord has done as he has promised in Jeremiah 31:33 to put his law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. Freed from sin and law as their master, they serve the Lord as sons and daughters. In light of this freedom, this liberty from condemnation, from the guilt of sin, the wrath of God, liberty from the binding of conscience by observations not required by God in Christ, then stand fast. Keep your standing. Persist in this liberty. Swerve not from it in any way. Be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage, he says, the yoke, if you're not familiar with it, or children, as I was, I didn't grow up with farm animals, as I've mentioned uh, some before. It's that device put around the heads of two oxen or animals, right? And it's connected by a wooden beam so as to pair those two animals together to move in one direction to pull some heavy load. So, following the metaphor, don't submit your necks again to servitude and burdens which God has not called you. As Peter would say in the famous Jerusalem assembly in Acts 15.10, Why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Be not entangled again by those in Galatians 2.4 who can't come in secretly to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Congregation, let us take on the yoke not of bondage, the yoke of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who said in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Under Christ's yoke, not the yoke of bondage, Under his yoke, there is satisfaction and rest for your souls. Verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ, Christ shall profit you nothing. By circumcision, let's understand the context. 
It is not circumcision in of itself, right, that he's speaking of. Remember Timothy, whose mother was a Jew and father was a Greek. Paul intended to take him with him on his journey, had him circumcised to avoid unnecessary offense to the Jews, which they should minister to, beginning with in the synagogues, if there was one, in whatever city they entered into. However, in Galatians 2, Paul mentioned Titus, who was a Greek, who was not circumcised. Why? What was the difference? To avoid encouraging the false brethren. Those in the church teaching that circumcision was necessary for righteousness with God. Yes, they would agree. Faith was necessary, perhaps, but circumcision is also necessary. And without it, there is no justification with God. Therefore, to tip the hat and thereby condone, right, and give approval in some sense to these false brethren would be a scandal and discouragement to all the believers, especially to the Gentile churches and those who had not been circumcised. To be circumcised in this context, this is to entangle yourselves, as again, as children of the bondwoman, as servants, not as sons, to make your observance of the law of God and old ordinances the way by which you will be made right with God. This is to entangle yourself in this idea of merit religion, where you become a debtor to the whole law of God, to keep it entirely in all its dimensions and scope, not just one external part of it, the ceremony of circumcision. Let's not be mistaken. As we heard earlier today, we'll hear it again in this reading and the next. Merit religion was not the religion of Abraham. It was not the religion of Job or of Moses, Samuel or David. No, their religion was of grace. Of the same covenant of grace whose mediator is Christ. Their circumcision was not an ordinance of merit religion. But, and this is an important but, Then and on until today, there were among the Jews who would turn the gracious covenant of Jehovah into a system of earning, a system of merit, an economy of God rewarding according to self-righteousness and self-worth. Friends, Christ will be of no profit to you in such a system. Christ and his work is for sinners, circumcised and uncircumcised, to be taken hold of by the begging hands of faith by grace, not by circumcision, not by observance of God's law, or not even of the mixing of the two, faith and works. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace, verse 4 he says. Ye are fallen from that system and offer of grace. Christ is of no effect, no use in salvation outside of this covenant of grace. You must choose either Christ's merit for or your own, but you will not add to the worth of Christ's work. For we, through the Spirit, wait hope, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith, in verse 5 he'll say. The hope of righteousness, whether we consider justification, being rendered righteous before God, or the good expectation of future glory, it is attained through faith. We, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. A faith which worketh by love is not a dead faith, but one that is moved unto acts of love. Love is one of the instruments by which true faith works itself out. Ye did run well, he says in verse 7. You started off in the Christian life well. Who did hinder you? 
Who turned you aside? Congregation, it is good to start the Christian life well. But even more important, how you finish. You might think of the metaphors the apostle will sometimes use of the Christian life, of walking, right, of running, of fighting. It's great to begin a good stride of walking, but you must continue right in it to arrive to your destination. You might start a race off well, but you need to continue on if you want to win the prize and reach the end. Or if you're in a fight, right, you might get the upper hand in the beginning, but if you start slacking off and getting comfortable until your opponent gets the upper hand and defeats you, right, we, we must finish well as well. Beware, this persuasion cometh not of him that calleth you, Paul says. And if this persuasion is of not of him that has called you, it must be from below. Satanic, devilish. This persuasion and teaching is not a tertiary issue, right? Um, on some small, minuscule matter. There can be no indifference, right? Or room for difference of opinion or passive waiting and toleration to see what happens in the church with regards to this teaching. It's not as some lesser matters where we say, well, some, some good brothers disagree on this. No, each and every one according to place and station according to the lawful influence they bear, must reject it among themselves. There is no sitting on the sidelines as to whether Christ is of no use to you, of none effect. This is not the voice of him that has called you. Christ, who is beloved of the Father, in whom he is well pleased, he has called you. Hear him and his voice that you may go on and finish well. In verse 10, the Apostle Paul here could be said to be lessening the offense of his reproof of them by suggesting that they indeed, they indeed would agree with him. They'd come to a like mind in what he had written, that though he had serious concerns of them, he hoped that they would indeed come to be of the same mind, that the fault principally was of those false brethren who are leading them, who trouble them. They, your troublers, who agitate you with false and heretical doctrines, the Lord will, will deal with them in judgment. In verse 11, Paul seems as though he is answering a charge against him, as though it were suggested that he himself taught the necessity of circumcision at one point. Perhaps they gathered that from Timothy being circumcised in Acts 16. And he answers it by a sort of rhetorical question. If I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? However, Paul says, if that were true, why am I... Why am I suffer persecution from the Jews of what I preach? This would result in the offense of the cross to be ceased. Understand by the cross here the gospel. That free offer of gracious salvation in Christ and his cross work. Apart from all law observance, no merit or earning favor on our part are involved. You or anyone else but Christ and his cross work are not good enough. This message is offensive. It's offensive to the natural corrupt heart, unless we include a measure of earning alongside the cross. Paul would have none of it. I would have that they were even cut off, which trouble you, he says. Notice again the distinguishing between those who are being led a certain direction and the leaders themselves. There is a measure of charity Paul gives to those who are being led astray, but a severity towards those who are leading them astray. 
They lead people, even churches, into heresy to make Christ of no use to them. But in verse 13 and forward, the Apostle Paul here turns a corner to address how we are to use our Christian liberty or freedom. Ye have been called unto liberty, not license, liberty from bondage to sin, called unto liberty to serve God in righteousness, to take Christ's yoke upon you. This liberty is not indifferent, as though in Christian liberty and freedom you are neither positive or negative, you're neither hot or cold, right? You're neither righteous or unrighteous. I've just been set free from unrighteous, but I'm in the middle now. Christian liberty is one that has been set free to serve God in Christ and keep his commandments. Christian liberty frees us from the binding of conscience by men. Freedom from needing to keep the doctrine and commandments of men. But this Christian freedom does not make us renegades or rebels, free to go about as contentious, contrarians or rabble-rousers. No, you are free, he says. You use your Christian liberty as an occasion to serve one another in love. You want to be observers of the law? Great. Be zealous in a good thing, right? As we heard earlier, love thy neighbor as thyself. And in this is comprehended all the duties we bear to one another. But if ye bite and devour one another, in verse 15, take heed that ye be not consumed one of another. Do you think that you can do contrarily, stirring up strife and contentions, and that it will end well? No, it will end in your common ruin. This I say then, walk in the Spirit. What is it to walk in the Spirit? We understand that walking in Scripture is often a metaphor. A metaphor to speak of the moral activities of a person moving in a certain direction, right? So to walk in the Spirit is to set ourselves and all of our activities to be led by the Spirit's direction in line with the new nature He has created in us. The benefits of this is that we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, the remaining corruption that still remains within, those inordinate, improper, indecent, unbounded, unreasonable motions of our souls. No, but if one walk in the Spirit, they are thereby led of the Spirit, and are not under the law as a judge to condemn, but are sons with the Spirit of grace to overcome the works of the flesh. What are the works of the flesh? He gives about 17 specific examples and ends it with, and such like. Notice these works and fruits of living after the inordinate desires of the flesh. They involve the whole man, right, in all his activity, the internal and the external. They're manifest to everyone, toward God and toward neighbor. Of the which, in verse 21, I tell you before, as I've also told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Because, as it says in another letter, Romans 8.14, as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. They that do and walk in these works of the flesh are not led by the Spirit of God. And so they do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God in their present condition. Notice now, by way of contrast, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that comes forth from walking and being led by the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Those that walk after the Spirit, they will find the law to them a friend. It does not hang over them, condemning them or striking against them. They that are Christ have nailed up the flesh and its corruptions. So while it is yet not completely removed and dead, so to speak, is in the process of dying 
and being put to death. It's crucified. Brothers and sisters, if we profess to live in the Spirit, to have spiritual life, let us then also walk in the Spirit as we have spoken of earlier. Let us match our profession with our walking, with our living. Let us seek the manifestation of those fruits of the Spirit. Let us leave off, as he says, desiring vain glory, attention, and praise from people, provoking one another, poking at each other unto edification, not unto edification, envying one another with ambition to be held in higher regard than another. This is not of the Spirit, nor of his gifts. These are the works of the flesh. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And that concludes our time together in Galatians 5.